Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Greetings everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the Gulf Coast of Texas, the coast with the most, and it is my pride and privilege to be doing so. So thank you all very much, listeners new and old alike. Thank you all very much for supporting me by subscribing to the Anchor FM Beyond Top Secret Texan headquarters so that you can get subscription status and listen to the privileged episodes on Spotify and on Anchor FM. So thank you all very much for those that are checking out the social media as well, who are sharing this content and who are racking up the views internationally. Without you, this channel would not be thriving, and it is most sincerely that I thank you and your loyalty as listeners. Your time is precious. That's really what means the most to me. But if you could leave a review, a like, you know, a share, get it into, um, some new listeners' hands or spread it across the web, either through Reddit or, um, you know, whatever, 4chan, try to get it through the podcast circles to rank up through the paranormal crowds that are out there, post it on Twitter, get it out in front of your language, if you could do some transcription work, that would be excellent, some volunteer work for transcription services. This is broadcast solely in English, but I'm open to a Spanish and, uh, you know, any any other languages, um, whether they be like a French or a Japanese or whatever, the transcription services to get this into a, a even greater international audience. Uh, Tamil or Hindu, you know something, uh, anything basically would would be you know incredible um, advances in getting this out there, getting this in front of people. Because this is information that everyone needs to know. This is information that will change your life. It will change your worldview. And I do post obscure, controversial, but incredibly legit information from the best researchers, theorists, and intellectuals around the world are in history. This broadcast is self-same. With Joseph P. Farrell's presentation on the Cosmic War. 
and how that led up to the breakaway civilization, and as we know it, the secret space program, how it's all connected. This presentation leaves no stone unturned. At the same time, walks very quickly through an epic history to deliver you a summarized and succinct clear as crystal understanding of the historical precedent, the evidence that we have, as well as the figures that are important moving forward. So thank you all very much. This will be a broadcast by Joseph P. Farrell called The Cosmic War. This was presented during the Secret Space Program Conference of 2017. Thank you all very much. Mark, T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We are go for Apollo 7 at this time. Excuse me, 2015. Joseph is a scholar. Uh, he needs no introduction, I know, with this audience, but his work has had a profound impact on me and many of the people who will be speaking this weekend. Um, he makes us think. He stretches our not only our knowledge of history and our knowledge of the world and cosmology, um, but he stretches the creativity that we apply, and it's always a pleasure. He's going to be talking today, Cosmic War, Cosmic Versailles, Historical and Mythological Perspectives on the Origin of Secret Space Programs and Their Policy Formation Culture. So always unbelievably juicy. With no further ado, Dr. Joseph Farrell. about my Cosmic War Versailles template thesis. So you've been, if you've been reading the books, you've been familiar with some of it. These are all the books I'm going to be drawing some of my comments today from. And uh, my thesis is that we're all creatures of our history. And this applies especially to the national security establishment in the United States of America after World War II and especially with regard to the UFO problem. And as we're going to see in this talk, many of the men in the national security establishment after World War II had much of their worldview formed, not so much just in World War II or by the Cold War, but actually by World War I. And last year, I suggested at the Secret Space Program conference that in fact, if you look at what's going on after World War II and with the establishment of what we are essentially calling a secret space program, a breakaway civilization, that these men would have formulated their policies on the basis of their experience to avoid a Tower of Babel moment of history and a repetition of things that may have happened in the distant past. 
And in that respect, I also suggested that they would go back and look at ancient texts to see if there was any guidance, if there was something in those texts that might be possible to formulate their policies from. And in this respect, the parallels between World War I and what I'm calling the Cosmic Versailles are truly astonishing. So my thesis is that the post-cosmic war period, I believe that there was an ancient cosmic war fought right here in our solar system, and that this may have created a Versailles Treaty situation, and that's what we're going to be examining today. So we've already looked back at San Mateo. This is what we're going to be talking about today. This is a two-part presentation. We're going to talk about the historical context, and we're going to talk about lots of artillery, since we're talking about World War I. We're going to talk about the mythological context, where we're going to be talking about lots of psychopathy. And then, finally, we're going to be talking about the implications for the national security breakaway civilization complex, where we're going to talk about lots of paranoia. So, now, this is crucial. This is absolutely crucial, because, again, as we're going to see at the very end of this talk, all of these things are in play with some of the biggest names that you're probably already familiar with in the national security establishment. As I indicated last year, there was a threefold strategic threat that the post-World War II national security establishment was facing. Communists, the post-war Nazis, and of course, UFOs. And as I suggested last year, this would have forced them to create a Manhattan Project on steroids, lasting several decades, but with the immediate need to develop technologies, reconnaissance technologies, potentially able to scout out and find out what the Soviet bloc was up to, find out where the Nazis were and what they were up to. That's a big part of my work. And then finally, not only to do this, but secondly, to, to introduce a program designed to deal with the problem posed by UFOs and to institute a long-range black projects technological research program to emulate the performance characteristics of UFOs, if possible, and achieve parity or near parity. And you're going to be hearing, I'm quite certain, from Dr. Paula Violette, one of my favorite researchers in this field, about some of these technologies. Now, this implies that the national security establishment had concluded, as they're trying to achieve parity, that UFOs, as I indicated last year, posed a potential national security threat because much UFO activity was concentrated over American and Soviet defense installations. And if you recall my presentation from last year, I indicated at a Soviet nuclear ICBM base in the Ukraine, at Bielokorovitsya in the Ukraine, UFOs actually activated the launch sequence of Soviet ICBMs leaving Soviet crews scrambling to shut this down and prevent a thermonuclear war. So we're continuing 
kind of my review because my, I want you to view my remarks today in the context of what we said last year. This is my revision and extension of remarks. And in this respect, last year I suggested that there's another thing that the national security establishment inevitably is going to undertake. They're going to try and undertake a study of ancient religious mythological text and lore for the purposes of seeing if they could determine who was behind the UFOs. And secondly, if possible, where they were from. Thirdly, what they wanted. And fourthly, what their motivations were. Were they hostile? Well, certainly with all the activity over American defense installations, Soviet defense installations, interfering with both American and Soviet and presumably French and British nuclear weapons systems, that this was at least a provocative act, and hence they had the need to develop these black projects to achieve some sort of technological parity or near parity with the performance characteristics of UFOs. And if that's the case, then they also had the need to determine if psychological warfare operations could be mounted against them, what policies might be indicated by these ancient texts and their contexts. Now, it's that last question that, in my opinion, brings us to the idea that we might be dealing with a cosmic Versailles if, in fact, a cosmic war had been fought in the distant past of high antiquity right here in our solar system. And consider the importance of this. Because if there's a cosmic Versailles, if there's some treaty that you might be able to find traces of in ancient texts, in ancient lore, then they need to know the terms of that treaty. Is it still in effect? What happens if it's violated? And I think once you get into seeing what I'm about to present in this talk, you're going to see that this was very much possibly a part of their thinking. So their goal is to prevent a second interference, a second Tower of Babel moment of human history. Now, one last comment about my presentations last year. I argued that the appearance of UFOs in great numbers at the beginning of the human nuclear and thermonuclear era was possibly because the nuclear bomb, per the observations of the Nazi scientist working for Juan Perón in Argentina, Dr. Ronald Richter, you recall that I mentioned that Dr. Ronald Richter said that plasmas under electromagnetic stress, and what's a nuclear bomb? Well, it's a nuclear plasma, under electromagnetic stress might possibly be gating energy in from the configuration of local space-time, that is to say, from the positions of the planets and so on, and when and where on the surface of the Earth the bomb is set off. So in other words, for a brief moment, it functions as a gateway, as a transducer of the zero-point energy as it's configured in local space. Therefore, summing all this together, if you're that national security establishment, and if your political, geopolitical, strategic, cultural views have been formed not only in the emerging crucible 
of the Cold War, but much more importantly, as we're going to see with some very famous examples, in the crucible of World War I, which stop and think about it, folks, right now, at this very moment, 100 years ago, we were in the middle of World War I. And many of the men that formulated these policies went through that and were part of the policy formation culture of the then existing national security establishment in the United States and the other Western allies. So this brings me to the thesis. I've suggested in many interviews that there's a direct analogy between the post-World War I settlement, between the allied and associated powers on the one hand and the central powers on the other, and that ancient cosmic war that I believe to have been fought by the gods within our own solar system. But I've left my detailed reasons for thinking this largely unstated, so you're going to hear them here for the first time. So let me state them clearly and unequivocally by way of a history lesson and lots of artillery. About 100 years and a few months ago, this rather dour-looking man, uh, Field Marshal August von Mackensen was his name, in the month of April of 1915, launched what was supposed to have been a limited offensive in Tarnov Gorlitsia in Galicia to help relieve the Russian pressure on Germany's Austro-Hungarian allies. But what happened was that his offensive was so successful and so brutal that the Russian lines began to collapse to the point that Germany decided to go on a front-wide offensive in 1915. It nearly led in 1915 to the complete collapse and exit of Russia from the war. That's how close this came. So if you can imagine that four-year-long slaughter that was World War I, shortened to two years, Russia taken out of the war, all of that massive military machine that Austria and Germany fielded then sent westward to deal with the Western allies. What made it possible was this man here. I told you we're going to talk about lots of artillery. What made it possible was this man here. This is Lieutenant Colonel Georg Bruchmiller. And we all know the stories. We've all seen the films. We've all read the history books of how on the Western Front, the Allies and Germans just bombarded each other for weeks on end with artillery to create breakthroughs, supposedly, in the trench system, trench warfare system, that held on the Western Front. This man changed the tactics completely on the Eastern Front. He believed in sudden, massive, coordinated artillery, infantry, cavalry movements with timetables. I won't even go in, into the details. But by 1918, these tactics were then applied on the final German offensives in March of 19 beginning with the so-called Kaiserschlacht, the first offensive, German offensive in March of 1918 after the Russians surrendered to the Central Powers. On such a narrow front, this man concentrated over 6,000 tubes, 6,000 artillery tubes on a front of about 25 miles. 
against the British lines. And in a five-hour bombardment, hurled more ordnance on British lines than we dropped on Nazi Germany in all of World War II. In five hours. And of course, the British were sent reeling. Okay? The roar was so bad from that intense five-hour bombardment, it could be heard 60 miles away in Paris. It could be heard, if you listened carefully, even in London. That's how bad it was. Now, why am I emphasizing all of this military pornography? It's because when we get to Versailles, something happens. And it's precisely these six points that indicate to me that there may have been a cosmic Versailles in place at the end of that cosmic war in distant mists of high antiquity. The six crucial points are these. Number one, the family feud that was World War I was over. For consider, Kaiser Wilhelm II was the cousin of King George of the United Kingdom. He was the cousin via family relationships and marriage to Tsar Nicholas II. The second point is, watch this one. The second point is, Versailles, of course, you'll recall, stipulated massive war reparations. Germany had to pay massive war reparations to the Allies. And I want you to think of this in terms, borrowing the insights of, of Secretary Fitz, I want you to think of this in terms of a tithe or of the ancient practice of tribute to a conquering king. And so massive were the reparations on the Germans that what you're really doing is you're harvesting their national wealth and productivity of each and every last living individual German. So in a certain sense, it's even sacrifice. The third thing I want you to pay attention to is what did the Allied and Associated Powers do? Well, first of all, they took an inventory. They've just suffered four years of war, and then in the final year of the war, these massive German offensives with numbers of artillery that boggle the mind of all calibers from the very small up, up to the very large. So the first thing the Allies do is they inventory the German war machine and stipulate in the disarmament clauses of the treaty that the German Reich would be prohibited from the manufacture of certain types of weapons. And if you stop and think about this, if you've read my book, The Cosmic War, I put in that book the entire epic of Ninurta, an ancient Mesopotamian text. And I did that for a very specific reason. Because when you read this text, it's hardly an epic. It's like reading the index of the Sears catalog. It's simply an inventory. And most interestingly, this is an epic about actions being taken after a war of the gods. 
And the inventory is an inventory of the weapons that were used to fight this war. And some of that technology was taken by the victors and used and applied in other contexts. Some of the technology was destroyed. And a very small category of that technology that could not be destroyed was hidden. Fourthly, as a part of the stipulation of, and provisions of the treaty, the Versailles system set up a system of monitoring to ensure German compliance with the treaty. In other words, you don't rely on the enemy that you just defeated to tell you, oh no, we're not building any of that. Mm -mm. You set up a system of monitoring and this has both a public and a secret aspect because the French, of course, insisted in the treaty that they be able to send their attaches and representatives to all the German heavy industry plants and inspect them to make sure that the Germans weren't producing any heavy armaments that they had just had the bitter experience of facing. But this also means that they set up a system of spies, and I want you to file that one in the back of your mind because that's going to be a very crucial point. The fifth thing they did was they set up a quarantine zone around Germany and insisted, and this is one of the quarantine zones, this is the Rhineland, and this is actually a German map that shows you this is what was demilitarized, entmilitarisiert. Uh, this is the demilitarized zone in the Rhineland. And that extended, as you can see, to a zone of about 30 kilometers on the east bank of the Rhine with allied bridgeheads around the cities of Köln, Mainz, and so on. So that whole area was demilitarized. It was a quarantine zone. They were trying to confine any potential German military action to a jumping-off position behind the Rhine River, should it ever happen. So they set up a quarantine zone, incidentally another one around eastern, the eastern part of Germany in a rather different way. And I want you to file that one in the back of your mind. And then finally, the most significant point, World War I was really sort of Act I, as we know. In a great world war, that the world fought from 1914 to 1945. And World War I ended more or less as a stalemate. Everybody's exhausted. We want to go home. We're tired of fighting. Let's call it quits. Now, if the national security establishment is formed in this crucible, this is the way they're going to look at things. They're going to look at recent human history, World War I, World War II, and apply this Versailles template to the reading of ancient texts and ancient mythology. So let's look close, more closely at this. What was World War I? Well, as I've indicated, it's basically a family feud. The Hohenzollerns are related to the Habsburgs, are related to the Windsors, also known as Zaxa, Coburg, und Gotha, are related to the Romanovs, are related to the House of Savoy in Italy. It's a big family feud. Interestingly enough, when you go back and look at 
the ancient Mesopotamian texts in particular, that refer to this cosmic war, what you see is a war fought among the gods, which if you look at the gods, they're all related to each other. So it's a big family feud. It's a big civil war. Enki, Tiamat, Nergal, Mars, incidentally, Ninurta, these are all related to each other by dint of their descent from the supreme god An. And the Greeks have their versions of this, the Romans have their versions of this, the Aztecs have their versions of this, the Vedas have their versions of this, the Bible, Lucifer, Michael, the war in heaven. Everybody has a version of this cosmic war. So now, look at something else. In the Versailles matrix, you have pay reparations. You pay us X billions, X amount of billions of dollars of Reichsmarks per year. Or be subject to invasion, military occupation of your industrial zone, and compulsory payment taken out in the form of actual barter, actual dismantling of industrial plants and shipment back to France. And this, in fact, did happen in 1923 with the French occupation of the Ruhr Valley. They actually physically went in with military force, occupied the industrial heart of Germany, and compelled the Germans to make payment. Now, if you look at the ancient practice, what's sacrifice? Pay the tribute, pay the sacrifice, or be subject to military occupation, deportation, oftentimes look at the ancient Assyrians, or make your sacrifice, make your animal sacrifice, your human sacrifice, and if you don't, you'll have bad crops if you don't make your sacrifice to the gods. Now, I want to stress something here that's very important. If you look at most of these ancient texts and traditions, sacrifice begins to rise, begins to become an acceptable practice after some sort of war. Okay? So with that in mind, let's look at something else. This little quotation is from the History and Mythology of the Aztecs, the Codex Timilpopoca, and is translated, as you can see, from the Nahuatl by John Beerhorst, and I've cited this in my book, Grid of the Gods, on page 208. Listen carefully. The Toltecs were engaged in battle at a place called Netlalpan. And when they had taken captives, human sacrifice also got started. Indeed, every kind of human sacrifice got started then. It was the devil's enemy who started them. Quemec sacrificed a human streamer, now listen carefully, thus making payment a reparation. So look what we have in just the Aztec tradition alone, just as we have, incidentally, in the Western Christian tradition, the idea of a primordial war followed by the institution of a bloody sacrifice to maintain the broken order and stave off economic collapse or payment by payment of a debt. It's a tithe. It's a tribute. It's a way of symbolizing 
that you own the wealth and labor of an entire civilization because they are defeated in war. Now let's go one step further into the distant past and this idea of a cosmic war. Sacrifice is also viewed as an analog to dismemberment that you see in some cosmological and metaphysical processes of the differentiation that leads to creation. In the Vedic text, this whole process of differentiation that creates all the fullness of diversity that you and I know and experience in everyday life, this is described in the Vedic texts as dismemberment. And so in some cultures, this idea of sacrifice expresses itself how? Linda Howe has done uh, yeoman's work studying the phenomenon of cattle mutilations. And even in some cases, if I recall, Linda, you were talking on, on radio about human mutilation. And what is this for? Well, as I've suggested, and as Linda has suggested, this might be a component of the institution of some sort of reparations clause in some far distant cosmic treaty of Versailles. Okay? Oops. Now let's look at something else Versailles did in more detail and compare it to the ancient text. Let's look at the inventorying and destruction process. The Treaty of Versailles, for example, demanded that Germany turn over copies of its big road mobile 16, basically 17-inch siege guns, the so-called big berthas that they used in World War I, you know, firing a shell that weighed a ton. And that Germany also turn over, especially to the French, a copy of the Paris gun. If you don't know what the Paris gun was, Paris gun was a gigantic cannon that the Germans used to shell Paris from over 70 miles away. And that may seem unrelated to the phenomenon of space, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a moment. The Germans refused to turn over a copy of the Paris gun to the Allies. In fact, they claimed that they had destroyed it completely and destroyed the plans. And in fact, they went further. They passed a law after World War I forbidding any German who knew anything about the gun or had worked on it or maybe been part of its crew from talking about it to anyone. That was classified a top secret state secret. The Allies, for their part, carted off what weapons they could studied them, number two, and made use of that technology from their former enemy in both military and other applications. This is sounding a bit like the epic of Ninurta. And number three, they destroyed, or insisted that the Germans destroy, as much of the really nasty stuff that they could, and ordered the Germans not to build any more of it. And as I said, don't, uh, don't think you're going to get away with it because we're going to keep an eye on you. So in other words, don't build any more of these and don't build any more of these. This incidentally is the Paris gun. This is the 17 inch Big Bertha. You can kind of see the scale of the 
thing. But look down here at the little man standing next to the Paris gun with a barrel so long that it had to be wired so the barrel wouldn't droop when the thing fired. Now, why did I put that in there? Because the projectiles from that weapon were the first man-made objects in lower outer space. It shot up into the stratosphere, and that's how it was able to achieve the long range. So the German space program really begins in World War I, and as Walter Bosley is going to talk to you uh, after my presentation, there are indicators even earlier than that that there's something going on in the world of black projects concerning space technology. But, oh, looky, looky. In World War II, gee, all of a sudden, the Germans are trotting out this thing, which had an incredible range of 100 miles, and, oh, looky, looky, um, gee, we, we may have found some of those old plans after all and maybe kind of updated them a bit. Um, <laughs> so, now, let's leave the Germans and go back to Mesopotamia and look closer at the Epic of Ninurta. Because this indicates that a similar, if not identical, pattern of the inventory, the destruction, and then the secreting of technology is at work once again. Because in the Cosmic War, as I've indicated, I cite this at length. It's pages 222 to 227. The whole text is there. You can read it in all of its boring, detailed, blow-by-blow, -blow Sears index, Sears catalog index glory. It's an inventory. It's a catalog. That's all it is. It's, it's about that exciting to read. And there's three classes of technology. Well, there's the stones from the Tablets of Destiny. That's what the Epic of Ninurta is talking about. The war, the cosmic war, was fought for and over the possession of technology of mass destruction. There are stones in these Tablets of Destiny to, preserved, to be preserved and carried off by the victors for use and study in other applications. It says so right in the text. There are stones that are ordered to be smashed and pulverized. Don't build any more big cannon. Okay? And then finally, most importantly, there are stones that cannot be destroyed. There's some component of this ancient technology of mass destruction, whatever it was, that could not be destroyed. And so, it had to be hidden. And listen carefully to how this is described. It's right up here on, on the slide. LL is the name of this stone. And in the text, the stones are address, addressed directly, like you're talking to them. LL, intelligently, you caused terror of me to descend on the mountains. And let me stop there. Because the word akur in Akkadian, guess what? It can mean a mountain, and a mountain in these texts can symbolize a planet, and it's the same word that's their word for a pyramid. Okay? You cause
caused the terror of me to descend on the mountains where discord had broken out. In the rebel lands you proclaimed my name among my people who had banded together. Nothing of your wholeness shall be diminished. It shall be difficult to reduce your mass to small pieces. You shall be greatly suited to the clash of weapons. You shall be set up on a pedestal in my courtyard. In other words, it's being kept out of public view. This is one of the gods keeping this for himself. So in other words, the implication is that the LL stone, whatever this may have been, was a kind of philosopher's stone, if you will, of ancient high weapons technology. It's a kind of ultimate weapon. And because it can't be destroyed, it's hidden. Now, let's go further. The Versailles Treaty stipulated that Allied, and particularly French, military attaches, as I've indicated, would have access at any time unannounced to all German heavy industry and armaments plants for the purposes of monitoring compliance with the treaty. Think about the implications of that. Because additionally, this meant that the Allies, and particularly the French, and you can't blame them, put into place an expanded all of their on-the-ground human intelligence inside the German Reich to ensure that the treaty provisions were being complied with. And incidentally, the other part of the story, as I've indicated most recently in, in my book, um, The Third Way, Germany developed the policy of using, listen carefully, using its big international corporations as proxies for the development of hidden arms technology in foreign countries, not even on German soil. Okay? So there has to be a system in place to ensure treaty compliance. Now let's go back to some ancient texts. Ever heard of the Watchers? Now, this is the Slavonic text of the books of Enoch. And this is the Oxford uh, translation. I have a copy of this. I photocopied the cover here. 1896. It's a difficult text to get a hold of if you want to read the book of Enoch in a scholarly presentation with gobs of footnotes. This is the book I would recommend. But now listen to what it says. This is from chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 3. The men took and brought me up into the fifth heaven. And by the way, what's that reference mean? St. Paul ascends to the seventh heaven. Fifth heaven. What's, what's all of this numbering of heaven? What does that really mean? And I saw there many hosts, not to be counted, called Grigori, and their appearance was like men. And their size was greater than that of the giants. In other words, to put it bluntly, they're talking about our genetic cousins. And their countenances were withered and their lips were always silent. Unquote. In the footnote to this passage... 
The translators, Morphel and Charles, note that the Grigori is another name for the Watchers, that class of humanoid beings whose duty it was to watch and, if necessary, guide, that is to say, interfere with human affairs. Question. Why was it necessary for humanity to be watched and guided? And I submit that the answer may be that in the aftermath of a cosmic war, which incidentally, in my view, may have included the destruction of an entire planet, all of Star Wars, what, it's what you would do. You destroy the inventory and technology that made such a war and the destruction of an entire planet possible, number one. And number two, you'd prohibit the development of that technology again. And number three, you would muddle the science to prevent humanity from achieving that kind of technological prowess again and misapply it and you'd try and mold and direct human affairs. You'd have, in other words, the ancient version of a covert operative or an agent provocateur trying to steer events and shape public opinion and socially engineer society by dint of those types of intelligence operations to prevent, it's a form of soft power, to prevent the recurrence of a war of that destruction again. And this is exactly, of course, the Versailles template. But then the translators go on to state something else in their footnote. I live for footnotes, by the way. They state that, quote, the text cannot mean that all the watchers rebelled. In other words, whatever this war of the gods was, whatever this civil war in the ancient pantheon, like the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns and the Windsors and the Romanovs and the Savoys fighting each other, whatever this ancient war was, not all of the people in that category of ancient watchers or Grigori rebelled. But it was from that class that the rebels proceeded. So note the implication carefully. What you have now are two post-war, post-cosmic war elites. A good one, the victors, and a bad one, on or near planet Earth, watching and manipulating humanity. And again, World War I was, by any account, an unsuccessful war, because what did it leave in, in, to, in place? in the defeated nations, especially Germany. Well, the Kaiser was gone, but that whole infrastructure, that whole German version of the deep state, the military class, the general staff, the industrialists, the big bankers, that whole class atop which the Kaiser sat was left in place. So the elite continued. And what the ancient text is telling us is exactly the same thing. The elites of both sides in this cosmic war continued. So they go on to state, it is, of course, just possible that the writer's scheme may differ 
from its conception above and be as follows, and listen carefully now. The rebellious watchers with their prince Satanael are confined to the fifth heaven. Again, what's this numbering of heaven? The subordinate angels who followed them are imprisoned in the second heaven. Whereas the watchers who went down to earth and sinned with women are imprisoned under the earth. Unquote. And this is from pages 20 to 22. It's the note on the fifth heaven in the Morphal Charles text of the book of Enoch. What you have here, my friends, I, th I submit to you, is a quarantine zone. Somewhere out there in outer space around planet Earth and to some extent inclusive of planet Earth. It's a cosmic Versailles template. So what do we mean by the fifth heaven, by the second heaven, by the seventh heaven? Why these constant references? And again, the Versailles template is very helpful here. Because Morphal and Charles also go on to state in their footnotes that it was, quote, under, listen carefully, under the sphere, Edom est, within the orbit of the moon, which is the least under all, and is a firmament, and there the souls of the demons are. And note conversely that in pagan traditions, it's not the place that is reversed, but the moral status of the people within it that is reversed. Because for the Stoics, and even for an early Christian writer by the name of Tertullian, this within the orbit of the moon quarantine zone is the abode of the blessed. But you still have this conception of fifth heaven, seventh heaven, second heaven, under the sphere of the moon. So I want to peel the layers back and show you what's going on. Number one, we have a clear reference to a quarantine zone which is defined by, secondly, a clearly defined astronomical and hence identifiable boundary, a natural boundary, defined by the orbits of the planets. Demilitarized the Rhineland. What did the Allies do at the Treaty of Versailles? They picked a clearly recognizable and more or less permanent geological feature on the topography of Western Europe and said, 50 miles beyond the east bank of this river must be completely demilitarized. That's the quarantine zone. Thirdly, note what else has happened. Because with the reference to the moon, a natural base of operations is created for anyone intent upon the long-term observation of humanity in planet Earth and its compliance with any possible, maybe, hypothesized cosmic Versailles treaty. And since the moon is ready to hand, number four, this might explain the sudden spike of UFO interest in and interference in human nuclear and thermonuclear weapons systems during and after World War II. And finally, there's clear indication 
that whatever the results of this cosmic war were in terms of interstellar politics or what have you, that the result clearly is, is that both parties to this conflict and their elites survived. So, we're in a bit of a moral muddle. Did the good guys win? Did the bad guys win? Are we the bad guys? Are whoever's out there the bad guys? Or neither? Now, we're getting to the, cr to the crunch here. Because what might this mean for the national security state, for the establishment, as they're noticing these parallels, or possibly studying these parallels between modern human history and ancient texts? What are the implications for a secret space program? Well, number one, since we have some indications in some texts of a quarantine zone somewhere here in this solar system, in some versions of this quarantine zone, it's at the orbit of the moon. In some versions of the quarantine zone, it's at the outermost orbit of the then known planets, which would have been Saturn. Okay? There's a quarantine zone. This may indicate that human presence in or beyond that zone could be interpreted as an act of war or a violation of the stipulations of some lost cosmic Versailles. And this is my real point, folks. It's because of that one point alone that those in charge of the national security establishment are going to be going back and looking at these texts in the post-World War II world. And as we're going to see in a few slides, you'll recognize some of these men and recognize their role in World War I. And now, this brings us to the other idea. Fragments of that treaty and its provisions seem to be appearing in ancient texts. So as a safeguard to this idea, It'll be necessary to ensure that human presence in outer space is not misinterpreted. And I suspect that this may be the real reason that when we sent lunar probes first to the moon and then further out sent probes out to the other planets, we made really darn sure that we put little placards and official notices on these things. Hey, we're coming in peace for all mankind. Who's the message addressed to? Why would they have suspected or insisted upon putting a message like that? Was it just to have a monument up there on the moon? Or was there another reason operative in placing these little notices on those early space probes? And what I'm suggesting is, of course, there was another reason for it. Then secondly, Adolf Hitler, of course, in 1936, remilitarized the Rhineland. He said enough. In other words, what he did when he marched those German troops across the bridges there at Cologne, Germany, was he served notice then and there that Germany was unilaterally withdrawing from the, from the provisions of the treaty. So now let's look at the implications of what a cosmic Versailles might be. Because as human international commerce 
becomes increasingly reliant upon space-based assets for financial clearing. Stop and think of where we would be right now if we didn't have assets in outer space to conduct our transactions, or for that matter, our global positioning, our Google Maps, and so on and so forth. We're talking right now about increased space mining, mining of asteroids, mining the moon, mining Mars. This means, like it or not, folks, like it or not, that you have to have protection of those assets in order to conduct stable commerce. This means, like it or not, the militarization of space is coming. The real problem is, is that quarantine zone. Are we in a cosmic Versailles? This means that we will have to demonstrate, as I indicated last year, by some means, I call it kind of a space gunboat diplomacy, by humanity, to whomever, that humanity has acquired a rudimentary capability of engineering systems on a planetary and stellar scale and that we might have the potential to weaponize systems on those scales because you can't take anything for granted. If you fought a cosmic war in the midst of prehistory right here in the solar system, and if they're still out there and if they're still watching, you know, lots of ifs, but this is, this is a, a game that you cannot get wrong. You must assume the worst-case scenario. You must that's why you put into place all of these secret black projects to ensure that the next time around, humanity will be able to defend itself against the interference from the gods or the demons or whatever. Those types of demonstrations, that type of space gun boat diplomacy, that type of, if you will, interstellar psychological operations might be, therefore, intended to force a renegotiation of the tribute and sacrifice component of any cosmic Versailles that might have been put into place long ago, particularly since it will not be lost upon the technocrats and oligarchs of any such breakaway civilization or secret space program that with the advent of Christianity, and its influence over a significant part of the world, that the payments of sacrifice ceased completely. Why? Well, in Western Christian thinking, because Christ makes what? The perfect and infinite sacrifice. So that whole system goes. But that might have been a treaty violation, you see. So that renegotiation, let's think in more modern terms. That renegotiation might have taken the form of commodities payments or of slaves. And by the same token, if that ancient treaty stipulated, well, we need so much sacrifice from you, symbolize it, you know, by offering your firstborn or whatever. It might mean that that whole sacrifice culture simply went underground. And I think if you stop and think of certain things in the news over the past few years, there's some suggestive evidence out there that that might indeed be the case.
Finally, if you're dealing with a cosmic Versailles situation, then the clear implication are also, first of all, both sides survived. Secondly, and the question is, are they still around? And secondly, that the first stage of the conflict is over. And that means there's a possibility of a second one. And therefore, a renewal of it at some stage in the future. Could this be the reason that we've been reluctant to pursue the manned space program beyond the moon landings in the 1960s to extend that manned program into outer space? further away from Earth. Now, given that this Versailles template, as I'm calling it, dictates that not only some sort of quarantine zone was established or instituted in local celestial space around clearly defined boundaries under the sphere of the moon, and incidentally the expression under the Earth I think is an astronomical reference. It doesn't mean under your feet in the ground. I think it means under the plane of the ecliptic. Okay? It's another one of those astronomical boundaries. This implies that there was some sort of monitoring or espionage project put into place to monitor humanity to ensure compliance with those treaty provisions. Especially, especially in the manner of tribute, sacrifice, and making darn sure that humanity is not going to develop these technologies. So in other words, there's yet another reason perhaps for the secrecy of these black research projects. They're not trying to keep it secret from us, but perhaps from someone else. Okay, and, you know, we're all poker players here. Do you ever really show your whole card early on in the game? Mm -mm. Of course not. So this means something else. Any program of the technological emulation of UFOs must be accomplished accompanied by a counter-espionage program to identify and mislead any watchers. Such a program would depend on a massive surveillance program. What do we got? And B, on the acquisition, listen, of a massive genome DNA database. Because remember what the text said? They look like us. They're just a lot bigger. A massive genome DNA database to identify those with non-human but humanoid genetic signatures, our genetic cousins, thinkancestry.com. And now one final curveball. In my book, The Cosmic War, I recount this war from a lot of different ancient texts, and there's something I, I began to notice about these ancient tablets of destinies, these ancient uh, technologies of, of mass destruction, I think they were biometrically activated. You had to have the right retina scan. 
You had to have the right DNA. Otherwise, they wouldn't work. That's why only the gods could possess them. And if you suspect all that, and if you're invading a bunch of Middle Eastern countries to collect artifacts, and not just oil, you're going to start looking for it. And the only way to do that is through a massive surveillance program coupled with biometric databases. Guess what the FBI wants to do right now? Fifthly, since the ancient texts, particularly the Mesopotamian and Greek traditions, indicate that a cosmic war occurred in our own celestial neighborhood, what's Kronos in the Saturn? So in other words, the whole Greek mythology of the Gigantomathe, the, the war with the Titans, this is all interplanetary right here in local celestial space if you interpret the text in that fashion. And you have a bunch of other characters, one of the most famous being, and you're probably going to hear about this character from Dr. Brandenburg, Nergal, otherwise known as, that's his Mesopotamian name. Akkadian name is Heracles, Hercules, Ares, Mars. This means that there might be remnants of the technology used to fight that previous war on those planets. So what's humanity going to do? Leave it there? Set up an international planetary, you know, historical site marker? Or go looking for it? So, while the public message placards on human space probes might indicate we come in peace for all mankind, the possibility exists that a covert purpose exists for the exploration of these bodies and for the recovery and analysis of some of these ancient technologies in our cosmic Versailles template. So final slide, if you've been counting the slides, this is the 33rd slide. Now, I believe, definitely, that it's evident from the behavior of the technocrats running this show, supposedly, and who are concerned with monitoring space and particularly UFO affairs, from the concern to secure human thermonuclear weapons systems against any outside interference, human or otherwise, and any space systems against UFO interference, to the indicators of the developments of hidden technologies and energy systems, you'll hear, I uh, hope, from, from Dr. LaViolette. If you don't know his, his books, folks, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion is, as far as I'm concerned, the textbook on the thinking and the technologies that are out there in the public record. To the development of a massive surveillance state. Look what we're living in now. Rapid on the spot. Why all of a sudden are we hearing about rapid on the spot DNA sequencing technologies? To the sending of messages on human space probes assuring whomever of our peaceful intentions. Yeah, 
when they marched across the line and bridges, our, our intentions are entirely peaceful. Well, you know what the British response of the day was? Well, they're just marching back into their own country after all. It becomes clear, in my opinion, that these patterns and these policies corroborate the possible existence of this Versailles model as a template for policymakers of the breakaway civilization in the National Security Group. And this template has indeed informed the behavior and influenced the policy-making culture of that group, especially as regards to the existence of a covert space exploration and rearmament program. After all, what did Germany do between the wars long before Hitler ever took power? German rearmament, my friends, was underway as early as 1923. Why? Simple. Germany is one of the great powers of Europe, in the center of Europe. To demand and insist that it completely be defenseless against any potential enemy simply wasn't going to fly. The Germans had to. So they had to make peace with the other pariah nation of the era, the Soviet Union. So who did they build the industrial plants for? Joseph Stalin. Where did their military officers train with the weapons that they were prohibited under the Treaty of Versailles? In Russia. With Russians that they would fight in World War II. I've always thought very ironic. Marshal Tukhachevsky, famous Soviet marshal, liquidated by Stalin, was a personal friend of the German Colonel General Heinz Guderian. And these were the officers that squared off in 1941. So in other words, the infrastructure of rearmament was carried out by proxy nations out of German soil completely. And I think that's what these men that put into place this system did. And that's why it's being kept so secret. And indeed, it may not even be produced here on Earth. It may be being produced right under our feet. So that's it. Thank you. Cosmic War Part 2, Joseph P. Farrell, from 2015's Secret Space Program Conference. Are you filming? Cool. All right. If you would, take a seat. We're going to come to Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. This will be the sequel to what you heard yesterday. Cosmic Versailles, Cosmic Tribute, and Cosmic War. UFOs, human power systems, space rearmament, and the decision to assert human independence. Give a warm welcome to Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. All right. get to hear me again.
<laughs> All right, let me get the commercial out of the way here. Always have to do my commercial. Uh, what I'm doing, as I said yesterday, is kind of a distillation of remarks I've made, kind of interlarded in different books and different interviews, The Cosmic War, Interplanetary Warfare, Modern Physics, and Ancient Texts, Babylon's Banksters, The Deep the Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion, Genes, Giants, Monsters, and Men, kind of an overlooked book in this whole idea, but it's an important one, The Surviving Elites of the Cosmic War and Their Hidden Agenda, Grid of the Gods, Aftermath of the Cosmic War and the Physics of the Pyramid Peoples, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, the Secret Programs, Celestial Psyops, and Hidden Conflicts, Covert Wars and the Clash of Civilizations, UFOs, Oligarchs, and Space Secrecy, and then, of course, several interviews uh, on different radio shows and comments over the years. So I'm trying to distill some of these remarks and make my process of reasoning for having made those remarks much clearer. Now, today, I'm going to be concentrating once again on three basic points. The interference of UFOs with human communications systems, uh, particularly in this talk. Uh, previously, I've been emphasizing UFO interference with defense systems and with UFO interference of nuclear weapons systems and particularly thermonuclear weapons systems in last year's conference. I mentioned that rather frightening incident where there was a UFO over Soviet ICBM silos in Bielokorovice in the Ukraine. And please, it's the Ukraine, it's not Ukraine. Uh, in Bielokorovice in the Ukraine that actually began the launch sequence countdown. And of course, the Soviet crews were frantically trying to shut this down uh, to prevent a, a global thermonuclear war. The second point we're going to be talking about is an all too brief look at all of the quantitative easing and missing money, as Catherine just mentioned in her uh, talk previously. And I want to say something about that. Um, when Yaron contacted all of us to give us uh, an opportunity to come to this conference, he kind of suggests topics. But none of us coordinate with each other. And I've been always amazed at these conferences with the synchronicity of insight that people have. Uh, I'll be talking about some things that uh, Olaf has already mentioned in his talk, and I can assure you, you know, there, there was no coordination on it. But we're going to be talking about some of the quantitative easing and missing money that are in the, in the financial systems, the mutilations that, that Linda Moulton Howe has studied and brought to our attention over the years, and some other mysteries and things that, in my opinion, like the big question mark section on Catherine's pie graph with the question marks, these to me suggest that we might be looking at that Versailles template that I outlined for you yesterday. So as I'm going through these three major points of my talk, and, and the final point, especially the disturbing scenario, what I want you to keep in the back of your head and in your minds is the context of this Versailles template. So let's start with a look back in history at one of the early alternative researchers into strange phenomena, a fellow that if you don't know him, become acquainted with him.
a fellow by the name of Charles Fort. And this is a rather lengthy quotation that I want to read to you. But it sets the stage for my final remarks. This is sort of part two to the remarks that I made yesterday. It sort of sets the stage for you to what's to follow in, in this talk. I want you to keep in mind that Versailles context, that Versailles template that I indicated that members of the American national security establishment may have been operating with after World War II and at the beginning of the Cold War because many of them were very influential and formative policy makers during the Versailles Conference itself and, in there, and then in the aftermath of the adjustments that were made to it in the interwar period. Quote, in this summer of 1923, now let's stop and remember something. Remember yesterday I said that the French in 1923 exercised their rights under the Versailles Treaty to occupy the Ruhr Valley in Germany and compel German reparations. So this is a very crucial year in the interwar period. In this summer of 1923, French aviators told of inexplicable mishaps and forced landings while flying over German territory. The instances were so frequent that there arose a belief that with secret rays the Germans were practicing upon French airplanes. From a general impression of an existence of rationality and irrationality, we can conceive that the Germans were practicing upon French airplanes something that they were most particularly endeavoring to keep secret from France if they had such powers. But I think that they had not, or that officially they had not. There may have been a hidden experimenter. Think of what Walter Bosley showed you yesterday. That there may have been a hidden experimenter unknown to the German authorities. An article upon this subject was published in the London Daily Mail, September 1st, 1923. Quote, Two theories have been put forward. One is that by a concentration of wireless rays, the magneto of the airplane may be affected. Another is that a new ray, which will melt certain metals, has been discovered. In this connection, it is notable that most of the forced landings of the French airplanes when flying from Strasbourg to Prague have taken place in the vicinity of a German aerodrome near Fort. It was said that for some time, at the German wireless station at Nauen, there had been experiments upon directional wireless with the object of sending out rays concentrated along a certain path as the beams of a searchlight are directed. The authorities at Nauen denied that they had any knowledge of anything that could have affected the French airplanes in ways that were reported or exposed. The forced landings of French airplanes in the summer of 1923 remain unexplained, unquote, unquote. And incidentally, they remain unexplained to this day. But now if you look at what Charles Fort 
implied back there in the interwar period, he's once again implying the existence of some secretive program experimenting on technology. We don't know who. Was it German? Was it not? He implies, first of all, the occurrence of an apparent electromagnetic interference with French flights over a concentrated specific region of Germany in 1923, and that suggests deliberate human agency. And secondly, that agency may be completely separate or independent of the official German government channels. We don't know. Remember what Walter said yesterday about the Nationalische Jagdflugzeug Maschinenzahlungsamt, okay? The National Aerial Flying Machine Payment Office, okay? So why is all of this relevant? Let's look back at San Mateo last year. And again, I said that there were UFOs. I, I was trying to review very quickly the thick volume research that a scholar of this particular subject, Mr. Robert Hastings, in a wonderful book called UFOs and Nukes, about a 500-page book. And he recounts in this several instances, one of them in my home state of South Dakota, as a matter of fact, taking down whole flights of ICBMs, both inside the United States and inside the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. There were instances at Malmgren Air Force Base in uh, Montana outside Great Falls. There were instances at the Air Force Base in Minot, North Dakota. There were incidents at Ellsworth Air Force Base just outside of Rapid City in, in my home state of South Dakota. And then, of course, we had that very famous and, and troubling incident at Bielokorovice. But interestingly enough, you'll recall something else that I pointed out last year. When the United States Air Force began to have these difficulties with UFOs turning on and off flights of ICBMs at Malmgren Air Force Base in Great Falls, Montana, and in some cases it's reported that the actual targeting data was altered. So imagine, you know, we get into a shooting war with the Soviet Union, and the ICBMs exit their silos and just fall right back down. This is not a thing you want to have happen. The interesting thing is that Mr. Hastings reports in his book that the U.S. Defense Corporation, Boeing, was called in by the United States Air Force to investigate these incidents and to find out what was going on. And Boeing was able to reduplicate some of those effects remotely. Mm. Now, as I put it up here on the slide, these abilities imply the ability to interfere with the electrical systems of any nature. Now, put that in the context of what Secretary Fitz just talked about. Imagine the financial system subject to such interdiction. That includes the power grid, computerized algorithmic training, and so on and so forth. Now, while we're talking about that, I want to go back to the problem of 11-9. Not 9-11. The problem of 11-9. Because if you were alive at the time, I was on November 9, 1965, at precisely 5.16 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
portions of Ontario from Toronto to Montreal, and the entirety of the states of New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. In other words, the entire American Northeast, and then the southern portion of Ontario on up into Quebec and Canada, included a, were subject to a complete power blackout, including electrical systems on cars, trapping about 30 million people on expressways, in elevators, in the skyscrapers for hours. They even did a movie about this. I think Peter Lawford was in it. What were you doing in the great power blackout? Now there's a problem on 11-9. The Toronto Globe and Mail of November 16, 1965 reports what has become more or less since this incident the official story, and we're used now in today's age of having official realities, as Catherine pointed out, versus the actual reality. A substation, an electrical substation near Syracuse, New York's relay switch had failed to function properly and dampen overload in the electrical lines, and that triggered the blackout. That's the official story. The problem was that according to the same article, when repairmen checked it, the relay and the substation were in complete and perfect working order. The same Toronto Globe and Mail article of November 16th, 1965, after the blackout was over, also indicated that immediately prior to the blackout, Please follow me here. Immediately prior to the blackout, the power surge flowed from a Canadian substation to New York via Cornwall, then down to New York, and then back up to that Canadian electrical substation. Now, either Canada is declaring war on us, which I think is unlikely, but in graphical terms, what this means is that the power was flowing in a great big clockwise loop around the entirety of Lake Ontario. Now, I'll just toss that out there for all of you physics-inclined people to ponder what's going on here. Now, incidentally, this occurs in a very rare article an investigation that was done by NICAP, the National Institute for uh, the National Investigative Committee for the Investigation of Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. It was a UFO study group that was founded by, here it comes, Thomas Townsend Brown. No longer extant. And you can research this article. The URL is http colon backslash backslash www.mt.net backslash tilde, then the word watcher, backslash FONOV1965, power outage, all one word. It's a very rare article, worth reading. And as this article points out, in the Syracuse Herald Journal, 
of November 13, 1965, in the Niagara Gazette of April 2, 1968, in the New York Herald Journal of the 15th of November, 1965, and the Syracuse Herald American on November 14, 1965. All reported UFO activity prior to and or during this blackout. And here's the clincher. The Syracuse Herald Journal and the Niagara Gazette articles reported these UFO activities over electrical substations or power lines. Now, if true, and I happen to think that they are, that these reports are entirely true, there's too many of them, coincidental with the blackout. If true, this means that whoever or whatever technology is at work in UFOs has the capability to interdict human power systems at that day. So this was a problem for the national security establishment, and it wouldn't go away. So in 1968, in front of the House Investigative Committee on Science in July, Dr. James McDonald, and those of you who are familiar with the field of ufology will recognize that name instantly. This was a professor, I believe, of astronomy at the University of Arizona, who, like Professor J. Allen Hynek in Ohio, became part of the country's expertise pool, public expertise pool, that it drew upon to discuss the subject of UFOs. Listen to the following exchange very carefully between Congressman Ryan and Dr. McDonald. Congressman Ryan, let me ask you a further question. In the course of your investigation and your study of UFO sightings, have you found any cases where contemporaneously with the sightings of UFOs, allegedly, there were any other events which took place which might or might not be related to the UFOs. Dr. McDonald. Yes, there were certainly many physical effects. Even the famous one, the New York blackout, involved UFO sightings. Dr. Hynek probably would be the most appropriate man to describe the Manhattan sighting since he interviewed several witnesses involved. I interviewed a woman in Seacliff, New York. She saw a disc hovering and going up and down and then shooting away from New York just after the power failure. I went to the Federal Power Commission for data. They didn't take them seriously although they had dozens of sighting reports for that famous evening. It is rather puzzling that the pulse of current that tripped the relay at the Ontario Hydro Commission plant has never been identified, but initially the tentative suspicion was centered on the clay substation of the Niagara-Mohawk network right there in the Syracuse area where unidentified aerial phenomena 
has been seen by some of the witnesses. This is a disturbing series of coincidences that I think warrant much more attention than they have so far achieved, unquote. Now, before we leave this, let's talk about another famous incident. Because if you're not familiar with a researcher back in the 80s and 90s by the name of John Keel, he added a little bit of extra information. He says, quote, during the great northeastern blackout of 1965, several local power companies completely independent of the affected main power grid also failed. Interestingly, while normal AM radio frequencies, here's a little physics detail for you folks, while normal AM radio frequencies continued to operate that night shortwave and very low frequency transmission and reception in the affected regions were hopelessly jammed with static. Now, let me stop you there. At this time, in American history, the U.S. Navy is using very low frequency and ultra-low frequency radio transmission with the antennas actually physically buried in the earth to communicate with our nuclear submarine fleet. So in other words, this is, by dint of this admission alone, a national security issue. This alone indicates an extraordinary electromagnetic condition existed. Following the blackout, New York's Con Edison Power Company quietly installed expensive magnetic shielding devices around key equipment and new heavy shielded cables were introduced in sensitive areas. After 1965, Bell Telephone Company began switching from overhead lines, remember when that happened, to more expensive, heavily shielded cables buried under the ground, unquote. And you'll find that reference in John Keel's probably most famous work, Our Haunted Planet. That's uh, a Galdi Press publication from Lakeville, Minnesota. That's on page 178. Now, please note what this implies. Number one, these actions on the part of these very large, very powerful, at that time, very blue chip corporations indicate that the official story isn't true. They know something. And that the 11-9 blackout had a deliberate technological cause, but most importantly, what they indicate is a private corporate interest in the study of the UFO phenomenon for the very practical purpose of shielding communications and the nation's defense and communications grid. Now. Keel goes on to reveal something else, which I want you to bear this in mind in the light of the events of May 6, 2010. Remember the so-called flash crash, where the stock market within a matter of seconds plunged 
and you heard the frantic announcers thinking this is the apocalypse, and then, just as inexplicably, it came right back up. Listen to what Keel had to say. Quote, in the summer of 1970, all the electronic gear in the videotape studios of Waddell and Reed Incorporated in Kansas City, Missouri, went haywire. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because during the flash crash of May 6, 2010, the official story is that the flash crash began with trades placed by Waddell and Reed in Kansas City. But... In 1970, the same problem was dealt with by Waddell and Reed in the following way. Something, something made our equipment completely sensitive to everything around us. The manager of the studio, Mrs. Kevin Eisenbrandt, told the Kansas City Star on August 5, 1970, the nearby Commerce Bank experienced similar problems with their computers and electronic gear at the same time. Experts called in to investigate were baffled, unquote. Now, let's look what we have so far. Number one, the concurrence of UFO activity during the great blackout of 1965 and the subsequent decision by power companies and Bell Laboratories suggests or implies that the UFO problem was known to the corporate world. So what I'm telling you is whether or not you think that there is government study of UFOs, there sure is corporate study of UFOs. And that corporate world was taking direct, immediate, and practical action to secure the power grid and communications systems against the threat. And that suggests that there's going to be a strong degree of corporate influence over any government study and response to the UFO phenomenon. And remember, all of this within the template and context of the Versailles model. I haven't forgotten that. We're getting back there. Number two, the placement of magnetic shielding over some power stations and cables suggests that they have an insight, or at least a partial insight, into the nature of the technology of the phenomenon itself and its reliance upon or production of strong magnetic fields as the result of its propulsion systems. Thirdly, the presence of UFO activity and interdiction or interference with human weapons and power systems and the implied ability to interfere with any computer-based system, including our most hardened, most secure systems in our ICBM sites and our thermonuclear weapons sites, implies the ability that not only defensive measures must be taken but that actions are in the human understanding, please hear me, an act of war requiring a response. There's your Versailles template. Number four. As Fort pointed out, and as we indicated with respect to Boeing's reproduction of some of the effects of these UFO interdictions and interferences with flights of ICBMs, 
some aspects of the phenomenon are clearly indicating some possible, though secret, human agency may conceivably be behind the phenomenon. So now let's look at something else. Again, we didn't coordinate any of this, but Secretary Fitz just reminded you of Secretary Rumsfeld's admission at the Pentagon in, on the camera that some $2.2 trillion was missing, missing from the federal budget. $9 trillion admitted missing by the Federal Reserve Inspector Elizabeth Coleman in 2013. And let's look at something else. Secretary Fitz mentioned the fear porn that she has to deal with in the financial industry, in the financial analysis that's being done, that, oh, the dollar's going to collapse any minute now. Folks, I'm old enough to remember when Nixon took us off Bretton Woods, and there was almost instant panic and crisis. We're going to have hyperinflation any minute now, and the world's going to end. And this, these predictions of economic and financial collapse have been recurring for one way, by, by one means or another since then. It's like predicting the rapture. Every five years we have a new rapture prediction. We have hyperinflation predictions. We have deflation predictions. And we've had it since then. And as Catherine said, as long as you are dealing with a closed system financial model and not looking at this hidden system of finance, the black budgets, and what all of this hidden money is going through and for, you have at best 50% of the picture, and you are not, therefore, going to be able to make an accurate financial prediction. There is a, if I can put it in electrical circuit terms, there is a hidden load end to the system. And that is explainable as funding for black projects and possibly off-world activities and or the payment of a tribute or a tithe or a reparation. And as Linda Moulton Howe has pointed out several times in her work on mutilations, the mutilations themselves have some signs or indications, including the process of exsanguination, of an ongoing operation of sacrifice. Let's remember, you know, read your Old Testament. Exsanguination is part of the procedure of an animal sacrifice. You drain the blood. So let's get back to our Versailles template for a moment. Reparations, as I suggested yesterday, war reparations are really the modern term for a tribute or a tithe. And this is the way of harvesting the wealth of a vanquished and tributary population. Now, in our Versailles template, I want you to note two things. France used a significant component of the reparations that they were receiving from Germany to build the Maginot Line, that big defensive system of underground fortifications that stretched all the way from Alsace-Lorraine up around Metz all the way down to Mulhouse and Belfort 
towards the Swiss border, a long, long line, defensive line of fortifications. And two, Germany paid those reparations, as I pointed out yesterday, up to a point, while simultaneously, long before Hitler, secretly rearming by negotiating treaties with the other pariah nations of the day, and particularly the Soviet Union, and rearming Germany outside of sovereign German territory. And this was done largely by the new emerging sovereignties in the early 20th century of the international corporations, in this case, the big German cartels. The third thing you'll recall that the Germans did is inside of Germany they built what? Vast underground installations. And we have the idea historically in our heads that, well, this is really only a process that begins under Hitler and the Nazis. Not, again, not so. This has actually begun as early as the early 1920s by the Weimar Republic. It's the Weimar Republic, not Hitler, that sets Germany on the path to rearmament and building these vast underground installations that the Nazis will use during World War II. Some of them are built by the Nazis, of course. Now, I want to leave you with another consideration before we proceed on. Remember that Versailles template. Because what happens if you get fed up with following the provisions of a very stiff treaty? You break it. You revolt. So... Remember the Spartacus revolt of the slaves in the Roman Empire? They even made a movie out of it. Kirk Douglas, Laurence Olivier. We have finally the ancient, largely Mesopotamian tradition indicative of an ancient genetic engineering possibility for the origins of man. And this component, remember what I suggested yesterday, you've got the national security establishment that's a literate group of people and in my opinion, they're going to start going back and investigating these historical precedents as a possible thing that they have to consider as they're formulating their policy for the future, and in particular, with respect to the UFO phenomenon. This means that this heightens that sense that they're in a Tower of Babel moment of history once again. Now... As I wrote, there's a problem if this chimerical genetic engineering story of the origins of man are true. And I wrote this in my book, Genes, Giants, Monsters, and Men. Listen carefully, because it's a question of law. And remember what Catherine said? You cannot have a functioning economy without a basis in law. This whole idea of the ancient genetic engineering of man places the story of the creation of man into an interesting light. Because if it's true, then under the standards of American patent law, which are more or less the same as most Western nations, the human being as a hybrid creature would apparently fulfill all four requirements for a patent. As such... 
Human beings as chimerical hybrids of other species are number one, original, that's one of the four requirements, number two, non-obvious, for they are not the obvious products of nature, but of the hand of man. In other words, the hand of intelligence, consciousness. Number three, they were created, according to the ancient text, for a demonstrable function. They were to be slaves of the gods. And number four, they were the result of a process of genetic engineering that, if you're going to engineer something gene genetically, it's a reproducible process. So, these questions compel some speculative questions of their own. For if mankind, as currently constituted, is a chimerical creature and the product of such genetic engineering, and moreover was created for the express purpose of being a slave to the gods, then who owns him? So the question is, as Catherine suggested, not just who owns Earth, but who owns us, if anybody? And let's speculate further to see how the law would look at this question. If mankind's original owner-creators were suddenly to return right now Ever wonder why all the predictions of disclosure aren't happening? Might this have something to do with it? If they were to return right now to planet Earth, would they have a legal claim? And would, moreover, they be able to prove it? Let me continue. And what court would have the jurisdiction to hear that case? What did Versailles do? It, well, set up the League of Nations. What else did it do? It set up the International Court as part of the Versailles template. What court would have the jurisdiction to hear a case like that? And additionally, you're facing two legal claims. Number one, that of the returning owner-creators. And number two, this is an important one, that of the course of performance of humanity since their departure because we've been, we think, more or less on our own. So there's actually a precedent established now in the performance of this contract, of this Versailles template, of this treaty, if there ever was one. There's a course of performance indicating that we've more or less managed our own affairs. And that means we're self-governing. So we would be, so to speak, abandoned property and under new ownership, namely of ourselves. Okay? Now, such... I'm sorry, folks. Questions afterwards, please. These considerations lead to the next set of data points that we have to consider as we're looking at this Versailles template model. And Catherine's, again, brought up some of them. Look at, number one, the expansion, not just of the phenomenon of additive manufacturing or 3D printing, as it's popularly known. Look at the expansion of the talk about it in the last two to three years. Think of what 3D printing allows you to do. It allows you to prototype locally. Want to build a widget? that you need for a fuss budget 
Well, you can prototype that right there in your home, cheaply. It allows you to do something else, and please note what I put up here. It allows you to disperse manufacturing. The days of the big industrial plants of Stoke-on-Trent and Essen, Germany, and Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, and Detroit are over. Because you can manufacture, quite literally, you can manufacture some of these parts in a very small manufacturing plant, assemble them somewhere else. You have a distributed manufacturing base and potentially a precision distributing manufactured base. And why do I put the military parallel? Well, most of you know that we're bombing the daylights out of Nazi Germany during World War II. And the height of that bombing occurs in August of 1944. Interestingly enough, the height of German war production in all categories, tanks, aircraft, submarines, vehicles of all sorts, also peaks in August of 1944. I think at one point I saw a statistic where in that month alone, Germany had produced over 30,000 aircraft. You know, we have the idea that, you know, it's the United States' big industrial machine crushing poor little Germany. 30,000 aircraft in a month. The problem, of course, was they didn't have the pilots. But the industrial production was chugging along just fine. The reason why is a fellow by the name of Albert Speer, who moved all of that production underground and dispersed the manufacturing base, and they did modular manufacturing. They were building submarines inland and welding them together right at the docks. Now, magnify that, put that on steroids, and you've got 3D printing. So in other words, it also looks to me like 3D printing is dispersing the manufacturing base so that you're dispersing targets. Why are they so afraid? The next problem you have is the American global gulag of so-called rendition camps. I prefer the term torture camps. Because we have to ask ourselves, are there really that many terrorists in the world? Or is that just the cover story for something else that, like Olaf suggested earlier, is to gather labor, especially labor that we in the West wouldn't particularly care one way or the other if we were missing to go somewhere else and help build something else along the line of Alternative 3's batch consignments. So what do we have? We have a simple equation. And I put it up here. You have the Versailles template with all of its implications. Reparations, quarantine, covert rearmament. Plus, demonstrated UFO interference and interdiction with human military, economic, and communications and electrical power grid systems. Plus, the push of additive distributive manufacturing and disappearing money in the trillions of dollars, plus a global gulag of rendition camps 
equals what? So let me leave you with a few remarks to ponder from now until the next conference. These are again from Charles Fort. I think we're property. I should say we belong to something. That once upon a time this earth was no man's land. That other worlds explored and colonized here. Or maybe vice versa. And fought among themselves for possession. But that now it's owned by something. That something owns this earth all others warned off. I suspect that after all we're useful. That something among contesting claimants, adjustment has occurred. Adjustment. What kind of adjustment has occurred? Let me stop and give you a hint. Because using this Versailles model, there were adjustments to the treaty beginning after that disastrous French occupation of the Ruhr in 1923. The provisions were renegotiated under the Young and Dawes plans. And then finally, in 1930, just before Hitler takes power, everybody agreed no more reparations. That adjustment has occurred. Or that something now has a legal right to us by force or by having paid out analogs of beads for us to former more primitive owners of us, all others warned off, that all this has been known perhaps for ages to certain ones upon this earth, a cult or order, members of which function like bellwethers to the rest of us, or as superior slaves or overseers directing us in accordance with instructions received from somewhere else in our mysterious usefulness, unquote. And that's Charles Fort from the Book of the Damned, page 163. And those remarks bring us to what I call the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. Because I told you yesterday and earlier today that many of the most influential members of the American National Security Establishment had their policy and cultural worldview formed, not just by World War II and not just by the Cold War, but when these were young men acting as staffers for other older, more powerful men, they were doing it in World War I and in its aftermath at Versailles. And one of them was Alan Dulles of Sullivan and Cromwell, who with his brother, later John Foster Dulles, director, or pardon me, later the Secretary of State, these were members of President Wilson's staff at Versailles, figuring out and advising Wilson on how we're going to handle the Deutsche Problem. Yeah? 
he ends up, of course, as an OSS station chief at Zurich, Switzerland during World War II, and then later director of the CIA, and then later fired by President Kennedy, and then later, of course, on the Warren Commission. But the formative years, the formative years of this man's worldview for government and international relations were forged in the crucible of Versailles. One of his subordinates is this man here, Richard M. Bissell. I talked a great deal about him at last year's Secret Space Program Conference. Who's this guy? Well, he happens to be running the U-2 program. This is the guy who's Oswald's boss over in Atsugi, Japan, at the Air Force Base, where Oswald is a radar operator tracking U-2 flights over the Soviet Union's. He's also in charge of all of the Central Intelligence Agency's covert operations. George F. Kennan cannot emphasize the importance of this man. Because as one of President Truman's post-World War II national security advisors, this is the man that drafts National Security Council Resolution Number 48, which basically and for the first time states the policy of containment and slow rollback of the communist bloc with appropriate supporting covert operations along the way, basically without going to the war as we had, please hear me now, without going to war as the Western allies and eventually the United States had to do against Imperial Germany and lay siege to it for four years, we were going to do the same thing without an active hot war. It's the policy of containment. This is its author. This is the man who basically accepts the idea that American intelligence got in bed with General Reinhard Galen at the end of World War II. Guess where he studied international relations, law, and geopolitics between the wars? Guess where his outlook was formed? the University of Berlin. This man over here is John J. McCloy, another Sullivan and Cromwell crowd member. Again, a highly placed national security advisor. He's like a revolving door in the post-war years. Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy. In 1936, he shares a box at the 1936 Berlin Olympics with Adolf Hitler. He is the American lawyer for the American branches of IG Farben. After World War II, he is the American High Commissioner for Germany. And it's this man, therefore, that is responsible for pardoning over 70,000 Nazis in Western Germany. If you've read my book, The Third Way, the anonymous contacts mentioned in the Madrid circular probably go all the way up to that man. And he sat on the Warren Commission. 
So, on the 33rd and final slide, <laughs> I'm going to leave you with some thoughts. I think that all of this cultural context is necessary because I think that these men took the decision that whatever they were dealing with, with the UFO phenomenon, that it was absolutely necessary to do two things. Number one, humanity had to avoid absolutely any recurrence of a Tower of Babel moment in human history where any force external to humanity stepped in and dictated what the human future should be. Or to put it in the German terms that they would have known from the period, almost as soon as the ink was dry on the Treaty of Versailles, German political philosophers and lawyers and industrialists began talking about the necessity for <coughs> to reassert its Verhoheit, which means its military sovereignty. You cannot have sovereignty if you are left weak and defenseless, surrounded by powerful neighbors. I think this means, therefore, that they took a second decision, that humanity had to have the ability to assert and maintain its sovereignty and independence against whoever was out there. And it's that process of reasoning that leads them to conclude that we have to develop hidden technologies, which is going to cost a lot of money over several decades, to develop the systems to establish parity or near parity that can emulate the performance characteristics of UFOs. So ask yourself the following series of questions. And this is how I'm going to leave it with you. I'm going to pose questions for you. Number one, would such men surrender? Or would they insist on immediate public disclosure? Or would they adhere to whatever treaty provisions that they may have discovered in their researches while secretly rearming. And three final questions to ponder. If there was, at some point in high antiquity, a cosmic Versailles between whomever and planet Earth, when did or does that treaty expire? Or did it expire? Or did one party serve notice to the other party that it was withdrawing from the provisions of the treaty? And that's it.